You're listening to Faith for Normal People, the only other God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Attention pupils, it's that time of year again. Summer school classes are upon us and we're starting with our June class called Not Kirk Cameron's Apocalypse, a more robust and colorful look at the end times described in John's Revelation, taught by Dr. Lynn R. Huber. That's quite the title. That's a very Bible for normal people title. That's like one of my books. That title that's basically a chapter. Anyway, in this one night class, Dr. Huber will define what an apocalypse is, because I'm sure lots of people are That's a good thing to do. For sure. Yeah. Probably what it is and what it isn't, because that's even even probably better. better. And why the author of Revelation might have chosen this language found in the last book of the Christian Bible. And topics we'll cover in the class is, for example, defining what an apocalypse is, right? That's important. Who wrote Revelation and why the use of apocalyptic imagery is found there and the gendered imagery used in Revelation. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. And how have people read Revelation throughout history? A lot of stuff being covered there. That's right. So this class includes one night live class, which is going to be June 28th from 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. So put that in your calendar. Cannot stress that enough, Eastern time. June 28th, 8 to 9.30 p.m. Eastern time. There will be a live Q&A session. You'll have a link to the class recording that you can get afterward and downloadable class slides. As always, the classes pay what you can until the class ends. So just pay what you can. And if you join our community, though, the Society of Normal Mm. People, you can get this class and all of our other And who wouldn't, actually? Who who wouldn't want that? Mm -hmm. You can get this class and all of our other classes, past and future, for just $12 a month. So for more information about that and to sign up, visit thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash summer school. Today on Faith for Normal People, I'm talking about the Christian creeds with David Bentley Hart. Now, David is so well-known, I'm sure, to many of you. He's a writer, philosopher, religious studies scholar. He's a critic. He's an Eastern Orthodox theologian with many, many books, including a New Testament translation published by Yale Press. And don't forget to stay tuned at the end of the episode for Quiet Time, where Jared will join me and we'll dig into our own education around the creeds and how we think about them as part of our own faith today. All right, folks, let's dive right in. What should never be the case is that one should simply think that one knows what the absolute theological content, what the propositional content of creeds are, because we don't. Even the historians of doctrine really cannot tell you with absolute certitude what was meant by every word. They are open invitations to spiritual and theological reasoning and contemplation. Knock this off your bucket list now, David. You've been on the Bible and Faith for Normal People podcast. Well, listen, let's talk about creeds, and we're going to discuss this because I've run into a lot of people over the years who have a lot of questions about creeds and what are they and things like that, and why do we bother? And I know that you've thought an awful lot about these things, and I thought we would just get into it by saying, you know, really bottom line, what is a creed? Well, I think that they were instituted or appeared spontaneously fairly early in Christian tradition as a way of cementing a particular identity and community that didn't have any outward signs before churches were built, before basilicas existed, before there were priestly vestments and the appanages of the clerical class or anything of that sort. So they were a very basic and necessary part of a way of affirming 
that this was a religion of choice that had contents to which one was assenting and that the confession itself was sort of a, a participation in the saving act of faith. Mm-hmm. I think they're very much a special part of any, well, I mean, as missionary religions go, I mean, in a sense, you would see the same thing in Buddhism and that in its early forms as it spread, it spread itself through the enunciation of particular principles to which people assented, you know, the four noble truths, the noble eightfold path. So, I think this is just speaking structurally natural for a religion of choice, you know, a faith of chosen inclusion. And in the case of Christianity, I think so much of the language of Scripture is about confession and praise as being the mark of the age to come, that all of all things in heaven and on earth and below the earth would ultimately joyously confess, joyously praise God, that the very act of confession had a special significance in Christianity, and not in the same way as in any other religion. You know, the natural way that some confessions will arise for community identity and things like that. It's been said that, you know, the Judaism out of which the Christian movement grew was not a creedal religion. Would you agree with that? Well, it depends. I mean, obviously, what we think of Judaism now is rabbinic Judaism, which was only just emerging at the same time that Christianity was. But even within Christ's own time, there are confessional forms like, you know, Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Achad. There are affirmations, at least in that stream of Judaism, that would become the rabbinic tradition. And in the Second Temple period, there were certainly any number of sects or uh, devotions that were special, you know, that involved, say, baptism or setting yourself apart in a special community like the Essenes that had a specific set of beliefs, and I would imagine might even have had uh, spoken confessions of faith. So, I, I think we always overgeneralize when we talk about Judaism because, of course, it was a diverse phenomenon in Christ's time. It was only evolving into what we now understand as Judaism in the wake of the destruction of the Second Temple would become the mainstream tradition. And much of the Judaism of Christ's time has disappeared, has left few marks behind. I mean, the Second Temple apocalyptic literature for most people in the Jewish world, a matter of scholarly interest. It's not part of the living religious tradition. A lot of it was assumed into Christianity, but in a transformed way, obviously. So, yeah, I would I would say generalizations of that sort are better avoided. Right. Well, let's just give us a quick rundown, a 30,000-foot view here of the ancient Christian creeds, like what were the main ones, and maybe we can talk about distinctives of them. Again, not to get too deep into the weeds here, just a quick overview. I mean, the earliest Christian creed seems just to have been Jesus Kyrios, you know, Jesus is Lord. But, uh, for instance, the Philippians hymn, there's some evidence that Paul there is quoting, if not a kind of hymnody, a kind of confession about the person of Christ, you know, who uh, you know, had a right to the form of a god, to live to be like a god is what the Greek actually says. It uh, chose instead the form of a servant. And this is laid out in what looks like a confessional form. 
the Didache, the, the early, which was somewhat time in the first century, the latter half of the first century, has a lot of creedal material in it, as well as instructions on the life of faith, many of which have not holding on to your private possessions, things that were part of the early church that we tended to abandon fairly quickly once, <laughs> once Christianity spread among the propertied class. And then there are these odd things like Aristides of Athens, there's a creed, there's a, the old Roman symbol might be very early 3rd century. There are other, I mean, there are creeds from groups that have since fallen out of favor, like the Arians, they definitely had confessional. Well, well David, how about the, I mean, the Apostles' Creed is one that a lot of people know, they at least have maybe recite it, they know it. How old is that? Do we know when that might have been written? You know, the, the truth of the matter is that we really don't know. Some people think it antedates and provided the template for later creeds, but a lot of historical evidence suggests that it's a Western creed, maybe from Gaul, uh, from the post-Nicene period, maybe from the period of the Christological controversies, 5th century. So it's hard to say. There's something called the Apostles' Creed that very late in the 4th century is mentioned, you know, about the end of the Cappadocian Fathers' period after Nicaea Constantinople. So the Apostles didn't write it. Oh, no, no. Well, that's an assumption I think that many people might make just encountering it for the first time. Well, I actually think for myself that there is an older symbol that the later version that we know as the Apostles' Creed was based on, and I think that symbol really might be older than the Nicene. I'm just not sure. Well, that's, I think, not being sure is a really good answer, because sometimes we're too sure about things we shouldn't be sure about. Well, yeah, to be honest, we know very little about the dating of, of a lot of documents. In fact, we have a better sense of the dates of a lot of documents we've lost, because they're reported to have existed at a certain time, whereas things that we we retain are often poorly attested, and you know we get estimates that vary by centuries. JCPenney Friends and Family Sale is back, and this week we're passing the savings on to you. Use your extra 30% off coupon to prep your home and style your family for Easter. That's extra savings on top of our great low prices. Plus, share your coupon with everyone you know and love. It's always better when we save together. JCPenney, make everybody count. Offer valid 311 through 317. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. You mentioned Nicene and Constantinople. Could you talk about those two creeds? They're connected, aren't they, those two? It's one and the same creed. What we now call the Nicene Creed is really the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed. In its original form, it didn't have the material on the Holy Spirit. It mentioned the Holy Spirit, but that was it. We believe in the Holy Spirit, but there's no definite. And the connection of the Holy Spirit to the ecclesial confession, you know, one baptism for the remission of sins, that was added at the um, Council of Constantinople, the Second Ecumenical Council. And it's important because, of course, after Nicaea, the debates that had led to Nicaea didn't end. The position that the Arians represented was actually a well-established orthodoxy, if you want small o, if you like, 
in the eastern part of the Christian world. It wasn't the eccentric view of, of a strange man who suddenly decided to break with the immemorial consensus of the church. And could you just it quickly was, uh, define the Arian movement? Well, Arius, though he's remembered as the chief heretic of the fourth century, the one who, who had to be overcome for the first creedal definition, that of Nicaea, the first council that could be called once Christianity was the tolerated religion adopted by Constantine. He was in the tradition of Alexandrian thought, which was subordinationist, that is, that saw Christ as a defteros theos, a secondary god. And what that meant at the time was in much of the ancient church, in the ancient Christian world, in the ancient classical Jewish world of late antiquity, and also in much pagan thought, it was believed that God in himself, in his most high transcendence, that is, God the Father or, or the Yahweh, himself was beyond all contact with lower reality, so transcendent that there could be no direct commerce between him and the reality below. So the sun was understood as a secondary, subordinate, and lower manifestation of, of the divine. Now, what kind? Well, for many, he was the angel of mighty counsel. He was the great angel who led the chorus of heaven. So there was a sort of indistinction between the sense in which he was generated and the sense in which he was a creature. There just wasn't a clear distinction in that regard in many minds. Some would say that he was generated just before creation for the sake of creation. Others, that he was created because, you know, this day hast thou created me. You know, there, there is scriptural language there to draw on, so to speak. The truth is, is that Arius was in that tradition of subordination that said that the Most High God is beyond this world. The Son is the Viceroy of God, and for all intents and purposes, God in relation to creation, and the Spirit is a subordinate agency of the Son. Arius insisted that you had to think of the sun as a creature, at least so we're told, and this is what led to the great debate, because there were other traditions, just as old as that Alexandrian tradition probably, that said no, that in fact the sun was not created, but was, you know, to call him the, the monoyanis, the unique, or as we often translate it, only begotten, but that's actually questionable. <laughs> the unique Son of God meant that he was divine in a way that, that put him beyond the merely creaturely. And, as this theology developed, for theological reasons as much as biblical, because the biblical evidence supported both sides, depending on how you read it, uh, was co-equal with the Father. And here, there was a theological issue, that is, that if you believe that salvation is direct union with God— deification of the creature, that God became a human so that humans could become divine. Only God can unite creatures to God. Creatures don't have that power in themselves. So if Christ can unite us to God, he must truly be God. And if the Spirit can unite us to Christ, the Spirit too must be us. So by the time of Constantinople, the focus had shifted. The debates went on there were those who still didn't like Nicaea. They still wanted some way to rescue the old Alexandrian tradition. And they were also adverse to the notion that the spirit should also be given divine titles, whereas the same, whereas the Nicene party wanted to complete this picture. <laughs> no, the spirit, and so in Constantinople, the spirit is included in the creed in a way that he wasn't at Nicaea because the debate had moved on. Even then, the wording is vague. 
you know, we believe in the, in the Holy Spirit, right? Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father, who together with the Father and Son is worshipped and glorified. You know, but you notice he's never called God. The Son is never called God. The creeds are still at that point because they were very careful about how these words were. It's still the word God in the creed is basically a reference to the Father. Mm-hmm. Otheos in Greek, God with the article, the, the God. That's, I mean, that to me, that's fascinating. And I'm, I'm channeling here, you know, many conversations I've had with people about the insistence that clear Trinitarian language is embedded in the New Testament itself. And the creeds were elucidating what is there. And others are of the opinion that, well, no, the creeds are going beyond the language of the New Testament because the context has changed rather dramatically in several hundred years. What's your thinking about that uh, difference of opinion? Oh, well, the former party is correct. There's no clear and unambiguous Trinitarian language in the New Testament. The closest we come to it is in chapter 20 of John. The risen Christ is addressed by Thomas, it appears, as as my Lord and my God, again, with the article in both senses, which would seem to be to make him equal to the Father. But of course, in the prologue of John, the Logos seems to be identified not as Otheos, but simply as Theos. It's hard to tell because there are rules about predication that could make that understandable. But whatever the case, no, I, I don't, for instance, I don't believe that if you would ask the Apostle Paul to discourse on these things, he would have given you a later Trinitarian formulation or anything like the Christology of Chalcedon. I think a lot of these things remained vague and undefined. If you look at Nicaea, and if you separate it from the imperial politics of the time, which demanded that there had to be a common confession, because the emperor was not at all pleased to learn that his new religion was divided internally in matters of rather foundational theology, the reason that I seen Party One still was that theirs was a superior theological gloss of the scriptures. That is, that, as I said, the logic of what unites us to God can only be God. If we're thinking in terms of this subordinate hierarchy of reduced powers, a defteros theos, you know, a secondary God, and a tritos theos, a tertiary God, then God, in a sense, remains as separated as he was from us before the Incarnation. And so, because the Nicene party was very much in that sort of Athanasian tradition of believing that there's a miraculous exchange that occurs in the incarnation, that the divine and the human go both ways, so to speak, that the divine enters the human, that the human may truly enter into the divine, they won the debate. But both parties could very plausibly read the Bible according to their theology. Even chapter 20 of John, there were plenty of ways which, well, this is an honorific at that moment as the risen one, Thomas is praising Christ as the adopted, almost as, as if he's so fully accomplished the work of God in history that he can adopt the titles of God himself. And uh, I think, you know, Hebrews clearly gives you a, a Christology that could be read in many ways, including a subordinationist one. The Philippians hymn is not a clear statement about God. To say. Again, when you actually read the Greek, what it really says would fit equally well to this notion of, of Jesus as the angel of mighty counsel, you know, because even in Christian usage, theos 
was a word that theologians, church fathers, were happy to use of angels, of saints that had been entered into the And he divinized it. Only Otheos enjoyed that special reverential reference only to God in his full transcendence. And what the Greek of the Philippians hymn said is not that he was in the form of God and chose to enter in the form of a slave. What it says is, you know, it would not have been a robbery on his part to exist like a god. Isa Theo, Isa there isn't Esos, isn't equal with, and it isn't equality with God. Okay, that again is a mistranslation. It's an adverb that simply means like in the manner of a divine being. So, yeah, those who want to see the creeds as just natural emanations of New Testament theology unfolding inexorably from principles that are explicitly there deceiving themselves, that's not what happened. It was a theological appropriation of the language of Scripture according to a more fully worked out understanding of what had happened in Jesus. But even there, I mean, again, I find this very interesting, I think others will too, that even the creedal tradition, the 4th century creedal tradition, which we were talking about before, was a little bit careful. And I'm, I'm thinking particularly, you know, I get these discussions online all the time, but Jesus is God. And I'm saying, what do you mean by that? How do you unpack that, right? You don't. Well, you, Jesus is Lord. No, and there's no, there's no statement that he's uh, a God in the sense of Otheos. Again, only in John chapter 20 do you have an intimation of that sort of language. And even then, for many early Christians, it would have been explicable in wholly different terms. In fact, I mean, there were those who thought that, you know, it's not actually in the vocative. He doesn't say, Kyrie mu. So, is he saying, this one is my Lord and my God, or is he saying, this one now is worthy of the titles of the Most High, or is he just, is it an exclamation of praise for the God beyond whom he can't address directly? All of these possibilities would have been entertained and were entertained by the early exegetes. It sounds a little like Paul, that second option at least, where it's by virtue of resurrection that he is endowed with the title Lord. I don't really see Paul well, talking about Jesus that way, walking around doing miracles, for example. Right. And in fact, he, he doesn't talk about Jesus's ministry very much yeah, at all, really. The Lordship, he is exalted above all other beings, given a name higher than every other name. But, uh, you know, as you know, early Christians, there were many adoptionist Christians who saw him as a man who had been deified in resurrection and given these divine titles and elevated above the angels, there were those who saw him, and this is how they have read the Philippians, him as, as I say, the angel of mighty counsel. The dominant view, obviously, was that a divine being had descended through the spheres, but divine in what sense? And again, I, I can only urge this, I've been attacked for, for this by Thomists, for instance, and others, Calvinists and fundamentalists, who don't know the history, for pointing out that Arius was not an innovator. Nicaea, the innovators, were what we think of as the Orthodox, and their innovation was to come up with a new terminology. The word homoousios was never used in Christian theology before them. That's why they were considered sort of radicals, uh, dangerous Being of one substance with the Father, right? Right, yeah. That's a non-biblical word. They had to invent a new vocabulary in order to give shape to their theological reading of what had happened in Christ. 
but as I say, well, let's just say there's certain camps within the Christian world in which the sort of the simpler story that, you know, Jesus came, he taught something that was immediately adopted in a uniform version and persisted for some time until it then, for reasons that we can't even begin to guess, began to break us apart because certain person seized by the perverse desire to, I don't know, achieve celebrity or to, to create division for the sake of division, began coming up with new theologies and that Arius and Eunomius and all those who followed him were inventing these things out of whole cloth in order to disrupt a, a prior consensus. That's utter nonsense. We know from the New Testament that the very first generation of Christians were theologically all over the place. I mean, you know, we know the Johannine epistles that there were those who had to be expelled from certain communities because, well, it's unclear, maybe because they denied the concrete fleshliness of the incarnation, or it's not quite clear. But we know that there were the epistle of James is largely directed against other Christian communities and explaining what they've got wrong. The book of Revelation, as far as I'm concerned, uh, is written by a certain kind of Christian who believes you have to be an observant Jew to be a Christian. And then when he talks about the synagogue of Satan, he's probably talking about Christians like the ones that Paul evangelized, you know. So the notion that there was some prior consensus theologically or sacramentally or, you know, it's just, it's simply not the case. And nor does it have to be, because one shouldn't necessarily expect that the experience of the presence of God in human history is immediately going to come with a book of instructions. And that's the strength, I think, of things that you've talked about before that I've read. I guess the beauty of a tradition, rather than expecting things to be simply locked down in the biblical text itself, which is itself a tradition that has developed and moved, and there's been disagreement and debates and things like that. Yeah. No, a tradition is, is a thing worth living in, but a, a doctrinal system is a thing worth tearing apart. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Let's close out a bit here talking about the value of the creeds. I mean, you mentioned identity and community uh, building, in that sense, community identity. In a sense, uh, the developments of creeds are inevitable? Well, it depends on what you mean by inevitable. In one sense, they were inevitable for political reasons, because the institutional church became a pillar of imperial society, and you can't really uh, I mean, if that's going to be the case, then it can't be too latitudinarian in what it will tolerate among believers. So there has to be a unity of confession and a unity of practice and a unity of obedience. But also, in other ways, in this, so I think it's inevitable in, in a religion like Christianity because, of course, it's proposing that something happened that you're trying to understand. It's not simply a spiritual path. It's not a collection of spiritual counsels. Those are there, as are the moral commands. 
but it's also making proposals about vital events within the course of human history that had an eternal meaning. And that's going to require definition. However, I would also point out, if you look at the creeds that were actually formed, most of them are accommodations. They actually are incredibly minimalist in their formulation. And this is something that goes too often misunderstood, especially in later years, and especially after the Reformation period, when everything became an issue of contending theology and, and Rome redefined what an ecumenical council was and started adopting councils that were not really ecumenical, as they didn't involve both East and West and all the different patriarchates. But the early creeds, the ones that I think should be taken seriously, <laughs> nonetheless are extremely minimal in formulation. And not everybody who lives in the tradition seems to understand that the theological concepts with which they freight the language aren't necessarily there at the beginning. The Nicene Creed is still not a fully developed Trinitarian theology of the sort that every Catholic seminarian, for instance, takes for granted. I've seen in recent years a lot of converts to orthodoxy, for those who don't know I'm Eastern Orthodox, but a lot of converts to orthodoxy from the evangelical world. And evangelicals, so they like to think that they, they're a non-creedal tradition or anything but. I mean, they are like faith statements at the back of their day. They have absolutely very strict and precise notions of what language is correct and how you're supposed to think. And the ones who've come into orthodoxy, have many, many of them have brought that attitude with them. You know, recently I wrote a book on universalism, and there's this fellow named David Bradshaw who, who's a convert to orthodoxy, and he was, well, it's clear from, you know, orthodox confession and hymnody that the orthodox can't, you know, no orthodox can be a universalist. Now, in empirical terms, this is obviously false because there have been a, quite a lot of them <laughs> down the centuries going back to, you know, Origen and Greg, who was perfectly orthodox in his time, but Gregory of Nyssa and Isaac of Nineveh and, and all these other figures right up into the 20th century when almost every important Russian theologian was either fully or largely universalist. But also this sort of pontifical statement is based on this incredibly rigid understanding of how you're allowed to read certain kinds of language. Well, there's plenty of universalist language in Orthodox liturgy and in Orthodox confession as well, just as there is in the New Testament. And the funny thing is a lot of the cradle ortho, I've gotten very little criticism from, like, you know, like the book did very well in Greece and very few people suggested that this is heresy. It's just because there are revered 20th century saints like Abba Porfirios and Abbasiliwan and others who were pretty much universalists, and this was understood. And yet, here you have someone trying to treat the tradition as a set of absolute propositional certitudes. And that's just not what creeds are. That's not what they are. Why they're important is precisely because they're minimal. That is, in their, in their formulation, they create boundaries within which you can reason together on certain things, but they close down certain avenues. That is, all right, going forward, we're going to have to somehow reckon with, from Nicaea and Constantinople, that the story of salvation we've been telling, that in Christ we are directly united to God, requires a real co-equality of the Son with the Father and of the Spirit with the Son. But how we understand that or look at Chalcedon, you know, and these different parties, how, you know, Christ has two natures, one hypostasis. What does hypostasis mean? Well, 
calcinin, it's not clear how that word's being used because it was used very vaguely at Nicaea. Later, the Neocalcedonians give it a meaning that doesn't really cohere with Nicaea and probably doesn't work, but it's better than others. Then there are those who are called monophysites, but they actually really believe the same thing. They're just using different language. There are those in the Syrian or Assyrian tradition who maybe believe something slightly different, but it's impossible to tell because they're using, first of all, they're speaking half the time in Syriac and, and half the time in Greek, and they're using the terms very differently. All that Chalcedon did was try to establish a structural rule. We have to use certain tokens, certain words to indicate on the one hand that Christ really is divine, really is human. In both sense, in both, both, he really is fully human, really is fully divine, and yet it's not two different beings that have been amalgamated into a kind of chimera. But which words we should use, the definitions are so vague that it's more a matter of convention. So once this decision has been made, the creed is there. It sets up a certain number of guideposts and boundary markers. It closes off some of the old conversations, but it opens up immeasurably more wider conversations, and that is the creed. What should never be the case is that one should simply think that one knows what the absolute theological content, what the propositional content of creeds are, because we don't. Even the historians of doctrine really cannot tell you with absolute certitude what was meant by every word. And certainly one should not believe that they're to be accepted blindly. That was never, they are open invitations to spiritual and theological reasoning and contemplation. Well, if we all had that approach, I think maybe the world would be a happier place. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, listen, David, thank you very much for your time. This has been wonderful. Thank you. now for quiet time with Pete and Jared. All right. So Jared, I interviewed David alone and it was a lot of fun, but I want to ask you, did you, maybe a two-part question, were creeds functional for you like in your youth? Was that anything taught to you? And maybe the other part of that is, did that change for you at all? Like, especially going through seminary where we had a very large creed. 33 chapters long with footnotes, which, do you ever read that, by the way? Did the, you ever actually read that from cover to cover? No. The Westminster Confession no, of Faith. No. It's I a long like one. I have three copies of it, but I haven't read it all the okay. way through. Give it to your friends. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Anyway, so yeah, so what, what was it like for you to have a creedal or a non-creedal faith? My upbringing was probably anti-creedal in practice, although clearly not in theory. And that by that Again, charismatic, it was all about free expression. Mm -hmm. And so things like tradition were dismissed and demonized when it came to like, basically there was a spectrum and the closer you got to the Catholic church in anything that yeah. smelled like the Catholic church, <laughs> right. the worse it was. Mm -hmm. Now thinking about that, going Amen. to a more reformed seminary, it's like, well, that was one thing that was consistent. Um, but <laughs> we hate the same people. <laughs> we, we hate the same people. No wonder I was attracted to them. Um <laughs> No, so I think the creeds smelled too Catholic. Okay, yeah, right. And anything that you just repeat over and over that's already been written, that's not a spontaneous expression of your faith, was seen as not as genuine and not as uh, mature Yes, as right. a genuine expression. So it wouldn't have made sense to do, I mean, I grew up also Southern Baptist, and so my mom would often juxtapose those, and even the Southern Baptists who do the same kind of things every week, mm -hmm. that's a little too 
traditional. Okay. Yeah. Then going to Westminster again, I think because I'm more built to like structure, mm-hmm. the creeds became more important and creedal thinking mm-hmm. would, you know, like the Westminster confession of faith, those kind of things, or even more structure was more like the shorter catechism right. or things where there's question and answer. Uh-huh. So those kind of things did much. I appreciated that. Yeah. So I did like being introduced to it. And then later in life now, you know, more liturgy, repeating the same things, uh-huh. having these things that we all, I love the idea that there are this, these creeds that, you know, millions of people mm-hmm. a, around the world mm-hmm. adopt right. every week. Mm-hmm. I like that sense of community, but no, right. it would right. starting off. It'd have been the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. I'd say for me, you know, I, I have like a mixed relationship with creeds. I, when I was a kid, and my sister and I went to our Lutheran catechism thing every Wednesday night for two years. One thing we did is we all had to memorize the Nicene Creed. And to this day, like when I'm in church, like I don't need my book open. <laughs> I can do it without that. Yeah, so it's, and it was sort of interesting, you know, we talked about it a little bit, but I think the, the further along I got, especially in studying, you know, the Bible in context, I looked at started looking at the creeds with a lot of skepticism. Like these are simply culturally conditioned articulations of their understanding of the implications of the biblical tradition. Because I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty adamant. I, Paul wouldn't have known what to do with the Nicene Creed, and Jesus either. To quite honestly, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't right. make the creed wrong, right? So I went through a sort of a superiority kind of complex relationship with the creeds, like saying, listen, they're just, they're fine, I guess. But but I think the older I get, I, I respect the flexibility of theological thinking on the part of those who brought that together. And David was helpful in this interview when he said, they're basically conversation starters. Even if it looks like it's fine-tuned language, you get to talk about what being of the same substance with the Father means. You, you get to discuss that. They're, they're more guardrails for discussions that are very wide ranging. Right. And and that sense that, okay, listen, now we're onto something. And also the creeds do what I argue ha- has happened since the, even before we had a Bible, which is contextualizing things in, you know, taking older traditions and in new contexts, reaffirming, but also restating, sometimes disagreeing and I see the the ancient creeds, which are you know basically Eastern Orthodox creeds, of of people putting the tradition in language that is meaningful for them at the moment. That's the entire history of theology. So it's that there's a respect there, and then I can dive into it as long as I'm not told. And this is the final word. This creed, you've got to believe what it says, and there's no debate about what it means. And for David, that's anathema. Mm-hmm. You just don't do that. And I, I agree with that. I think that's that's a rather foolish way of reading some pretty, you know, heady theological articulations. Well, this is off topic, but when you said that you had to re- uh, memorize the Nicene Creed in church, it made me think another kind of creedal thing for me was the Lord's Prayer. Mm. And I memorized the Lord's Prayer because growing up in Texas, we said the Lord's Prayer before every baseball game. Really? Yeah. So I don't know how that would fly. I don't know what the like 
you know, I don't know the implications of separation of church and state there, mm-hmm. but yeah. So that's, that's when I, I learned it from the fact that we had to repeat it every mm-hmm. baseball game. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was probably, actually, that was probably the most creedal thing I did right. because it was every game right. always said the Lord's prayer. Interesting. But, but the larger implication of what you're saying, I think is important as this ongoing conversation, which we come back to it again and again, that when we only have categories of, is it right or is it wrong? Regardless of what side we're on mm-hmm. of that, whether we think it's right or we think it's wrong, that type of thinking stifles the conversation mm-hmm. and the understanding. So when somebody says, are the creeds wrong or are the creeds right? It's like, well, the creeds were useful in that time as an articulation of how we're melding together, you know, as Gadamer says, these merging of horizons. Mm-hmm. We have our context like and our culture. Like the ancient biblical horizon and the whatever. Yeah, whatever. Right, yeah. Co- there's always this, and I'm reminded too of even uh, Lambert on uh, the episode we did with mm-hmm. Lambert and uh, Bible for Normal People, is this understanding that what it, something means is always in relation to the context. Mm-hmm. So what did the Bible mean in the fourth century that's what the creeds tell us. Mm-hmm. But what does the Bible mean in the 21st century? That's We still are working that out. Right, right. It, it is the Bible plus mm-hmm. always. It's never just the Bible. Yeah. So it's I just think it's wrongheaded to, to think about it in terms of right and wrong, mm-hmm. but to think about it in terms of, okay, what can we learn from that community right. and what they were wrestling with and the language they had available to them? That, that's I think that's key. What were they wrestling with? Because one thing that has turned me off to creeds is people using them as sort of like the unalterable gold standard right. for how you think. And, uh, you know, Tom Wright, he's got this great thing where he he complains about creedal theology and just says, you know, I believe in God, the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ is only a son of the Lord who is conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate. And in his British accent, he's like, and Matthew's saying, hold on, <laughs> I spent a lot of time with all that stuff in the middle, right? So uh, it, I, I find that to be a, just a reminder, not of the inadequacy of the creed. But what is the creed trying to do? It's basically trying to, who's Jesus? And how does he connect all this? And who's the spirit? How does he connect with all this stuff? And it's not trying to answer all our questions. So it is an inadequate. It's not a gold standard. It's an inadequate. But all creeds are inadequate. See, we're getting back to things of like mystery that we've talked about, right? All creeds are at the end of the day inadequate for capturing the totality of what we're talking about. They're more ways of talking almost, I mean, they're more than this, but sort of like conversation starters within certain parameters and let's see where we come up with that. So as parameters in general, it's fine, but it's not the thing you go to to say, and this proves why you can't say this today. Well, a lot of times I think there's like creedal statements, whether we're talking about the literal creeds or our own modern day, uh, you know, analogs of creeds, our dogmatics. Mm -hmm. It's a way to not have to admit our finitude, what you just said, that we all have limits. We are not going to put our arms around God. And I think that's scary because, again, knowledge is power. And and so we lose some sense of control or power when we acknowledge Mm -hmm. that we don't know it all. And I think that's okay. But the problem is then when our fear of that hurts other people, when we exclude and say, no, you're wrong because we don't want to admit, well, Whatever, what would we put as our creed? Think of faith statements right. on church websites. Mm-hmm. You're telling me these these 13 things encapsulate the entirety of the Christian religion for the last 3,000 years? Yeah, pretty much. No, <laughs> you're selective too. But to acknowledge that, right. then it becomes, there's a lot of implications when mm-hmm. we acknowledge what we're talking about. Right. 
if creedal statements can be very beneficial if we don't eliminate our humanity and our context and our experience, I think. Yeah, allowing them to be what they probably were intended to be, but certainly are now. Yeah. All right. Yeah, that was great. We figured that one out, definitely. Cross it off the list. (laughs) Well, thanks to everyone who supports the show. If you want to support what we do, there are three ways you can do it. One, if you just want to give a little money, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash give. And if you want to support us and want a community, classes, and other great resources, go to thebiblefornormalpeople.com front slash join. And lastly, it always goes a long way if you just wanted to rate the podcast, leave a review, and tell others about our show. In addition, you can let us know what you thought about the episode by emailing us at info at thebiblefornormalpeople.com. Thanks for listening to Faith for Normal People. Don't forget, you can also catch the latest episode of our other show, The Bible for Normal People, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode was brought to you by the Bible for Normal People podcast team. Brittany Prescott, Savannah Locke, Natalie Wyand, Stephen Henning, Tessa Stoltz, Haley Warren, Nick Striegel, and Jessica Schaub. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.